Coming up on Tech Nation, the mystery of what all this social media is doing to our lives and the information we consume, or perhaps more importantly, the information we believe. Andrew Morantz joins me to talk about his research and his book, Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Then in the biotech space, Dr. Paul Peter Tack, the CEO of Kintai Therapeutics. He gives us a bigger picture of our gut, and it's not just your microbiome that plays a significant role in health and recovery from illness. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Dr. Savante Pabo, the author of Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I asked him, we used to wonder whether Neanderthals ever interbred with modern humans. Is that debate over? Yes, I would say so. So by looking at the genomes of Neanderthals, we can now really show that pieces of their DNA has made it into people who live today. So that Neanderthals live on a little bit, if you like, in people today, if your ancestor comes from Europe or Asia. So it's not everybody, but we can tell the 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 people who migrated through the Europe and Asia, the northern part, could have a little piece. Yes, so everybody who comes from outside Africa have pieces of Neanderthal DNA in them, whereas people in Africa do not. Now, remind us, 40,000 years ago, some band of people left Africa, emerged out, and that's really where everyone else came from today. Um, and they, when they made it up into Northern Europe, that's where the Neanderthals were. Yes, so our best model for how this happened was that when modern humans emerged in Africa, they spread, of course, not only in Africa, but also out of Africa. And they then have had to pass by the Middle East. And we know there were Neanderthals in the Middle East at that time, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. And those people there, if they then mated with Neanderthals and became the ancestors to everybody outside Africa, so they sort of absorbed a little bit of DNA from Neanderthals and then carried it with them when they spread across the world. So that we find Neanderthal DNA today in people not only from Europe and Western Asia where Neanderthals have existed, but also in Native Americans or in people in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, even places then where Neanderthals never existed. It was carried through other people getting there. Yes. Now, George Church was here, the famous uh, Harvard geneticist, and he says, I've got even more Neanderthal in me. Can't take a look at me. <laughs> you know? So there's variations as to how much you might have in you. There's a little bit of variation. It's not that much variation. In Europe, it's in the order of 1% or so of the DNA of any individual. It's slightly more, actually, in East Asia. And there are good evidence now that one mated at least another time with Neanderthals, perhaps in the Central Asia or so, when people migrated to the east. Now, the Neanderthals, they existed well before the Homo sapiens. Yes. So depending a little on how we define a Neanderthal morphologically from the remains of their bones, they appear something between three or 400,000 years ago in Europe and Western Asia. 
whereas modern humans appear somewhere between 100, 200,000 years ago and start spreading out of Africa something like 50, 60,000 years ago. My goodness, they started and they ended and we're still going. Yes, and they existed even longer than we have existed so far on the planet. Ah, lesson to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it sort of puts it in perspective with who is successful. Now, how long have you been trying to get DNA from Neanderthals? Well, so this really goes back to the early 80s when I, I started my PhD in molecular biology back in Sweden. Uh, I had previously studied Egyptology and thought I would become an Egyptologist and got disenchanted with that and went to medical school. But I was then aware that there were thousands and thousands of mummies of both animals and humans in museums from Egypt and started looking into if people had tried to extract DNA and replicate it in bacteria from these things. And as far as I could make out, no one had tried, so I started Dr. Savante Pabo directs the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. In 2010, his team was the first to reconstruct a nearly complete Neanderthal genome. This 2014 TechNation interview discusses his book, Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Andrew Morantz. You may know him from his work at The New Yorker or his contributions to The New York Times or to Radiolab. He's here today with antisocial, online extremists, techno-utopians, and the hijacking of the American conversation. Then in biotech, we're looking at your gut on a whole new level. There's more to it than just the microorganisms in your microbiome, and science has some new developments. Dr. Paul Peter Tack, the CEO of Kintai Therapeutics, joins me to help describe this new picture of how the gut relates to both health and disease. And now, Andrew Morantz. Andrew, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I very much like your use of the term informational landscape. What does that mean, the informational landscape? I think sometimes we have a we have a tendency to kind of try to separate things into these very sharp categories. And we say, you know, TV is one thing and a print newspaper is another thing and a website is another thing. The fact is it's all one interrelated thing. You can think of it as an informational landscape or an ecosystem other people that I talked to for the book used a metaphor of a media matrix where everything is interconnected and pulling on every part of it. That helps us to see how, you know, the stuff that I was looking at, the kind of fringy, weird stuff on the Internet, that is stuff that people would prefer not to look at because some of it is gross. Some of it is weird. Some of it's uncomfortable. But it's all interrelated. It affects how we think. It affects what we see on TV. It affects what we read and what we believe. So 
the main point is, you know, we can't ignore any part of it. Now, it used to be when we cited audience numbers for a media outlet, we quoted readers, viewers, listeners. And now every media outlet is using every one of these technologies every way you can. If you're a print media, you have, you have, uh, of course, it's on the Internet, but also you have other materials and you have videos and you everybody goes every which way. And now, in addition to that, in terms of audience reach, we have top 10 lists of which mainstream media outlets are the most viral. In 2018, Turbine Labs said number one was Yahoo, and number eight is BuzzFeed. You can watch mainstream media all day long, and you'll never hear either one of those. Absolutely. Yeah, these things, look, we, again, have this old-fashioned way of looking at it that says, you know, the New York Times is the paper of record and, you know, CNN and Fox and MSNBC. Obviously, those are all big players. And I do think the New York Times is the paper of record or a paper well, of record. Well, not to trip you up, but number two is the New York right. Times. Number three is CNN. Number four is Fox. And number five is National Public Radio. And number six is Washington Post. And you will guess all day, but number seven is USA Today. Right, exactly. Well, USA Today is huge. And so these are things where... It's, the reason it's a landscape is that the big mountains in the landscape are still there. It's not that the Internet just immediately flattened the entire landscape. But what it did is it made us think that old hierarchies were fusty and anti-democratic. And it replaced, look, we often think of the transition from print to web, the transition from, you know, looking at the front page of USA Today to looking at the front page of their website. That's a big shift. But I think a much bigger shift that we underestimate and that changed our informational landscape much more is the shift from web to social web. So it's effectively the same thing. If you pick up your newspaper in the morning or if you go look at it on your iPad or whatever, that's basically the same thing. The way the ad model works is different and it doesn't, you know, pay the reporters as well. And that's all important. But if you're going to social feeds as your way of finding out about the world, that's where the, uh, the metaphor of virality becomes super important because feeds are personalized to you by an algorithm. So you no longer have this thing of an editor, a human being, who decides, you know what, this news is fit to print and this news isn't. In fact, that word fit, I actually um, have this thing in the book where I reconceive of the word fit. It used to mean fit in the sense of a human judgment that this is what, what we should print. Now it means something more like Darwinian, survival of the fittest. It's just a fight. It's a it's an evolutionary struggle. And Richard Dawkins, a biologist, was the one who coined the concept of memes, right? Because in the same way that there is a struggle for genetic supremacy in nature, there's a struggle for mimetic supremacy on the internet. And unfortunately for us, it's not a nice democratic, rosy picture of how that mimetic supremacy gets established. It happens through fear, through disgust, through rage through anger. So it's not a coincidence that we see really weird, dark stuff bubbling up through the internet. That is how the architecture of these systems was built from the beginning, whether these companies admit it or not. Well, in truth, it used to be if you lived in a small town, you could have somebody who was really fringe and you wouldn't know it. Today with the internet, they're a member of a like community. Yeah. And I just don't think that we can rest on our laurels and assume that they will be fringe for very long. I mean, the things that our president says every day are, you know, things that would be fringe if you were living in some kind of idealized agora or town square. 
but they're not fringe because they're being said by the most popular, most powerful person in the world. So, you know, again, we have these very bifurcated notions of this is how mainstream discourse should happen. And this is dark, lurid, ugly, fringe discourse. But the fact is, those things are completely interpenetrated now. And so when I started looking at this stuff a few years ago, I tried not to let my preconceived notions lead me. I, I tried not to go for what I thought should be important, but just look actually at what was influential. And it just became very clear to me very quickly that when you look at the numbers, when you look at the information flows, and when you actually meet the people in real life who are propagandists, who are making these information flows move throughout our society, it is not the way we would think it should be in an idealized picture. If we were to build a functional informational ecosystem, it would look nothing like the one we have. So we can rest back on our abstractions about free speech and talk all day about the public square. But the system we have built is designed to fail. It is designed to fail us civically, societally, and morally. So we can just push more noise into that system, but the system itself is broken. And the way I wanted to get at that was not by making some abstract argument and saying, do I like the First Amendment or do I not? Of course, everyone likes the First Amendment. What I wanted to look at was journalistically, in terms of long-term fly-on-the-wall reporting, how is this happening to us every day? You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Andrew Morantz. You may know him as a staff writer at The New Yorker or from his contributions to other publications, such as The New York Times or Radio Lab. He's here today with antisocial, online extremists, techno-utopians, and the hijacking of the American conversation. Well, when we were talking about this list of what's the most viral meaning you better jump on these and then you'll get some viral to your story that you're trying to push here or that you're in favor of. We have to look at a whole other set of things on the Internet. As of 2018, that'd be last year as of this interview, 330 million members on Reddit. That's, if you haven't heard of it, R-E-D-D-I-T, Reddit. Tell us about Reddit. Well, so... I wanted to do two things in this book. I wanted to go to the people I called the gate crashers, the trolls, the bigots, the propagandists who were so effectively using these tools to demolish our social fabric. At the same time, I wanted to go to the new gatekeepers, which are these social media companies, these companies that started in 2004, 2005, and had this bold, idealistic notion that they were going to make the world more open and connected. They were going to change the way human discourse works. And lo and behold, they did it. I mean, these few people, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who started Facebook, Jack Dorsey and others who started Twitter, and these guys who started Reddit, Steve Huffman and Alexis Ohanian, among a few others, they truly did transform human discourse. The problem is that I don't think they did it very well. But now it's kind of too late. But let's understand. And I mean, I'm speaking as my back, my background as an engineer. I've worked in Silicon Valley. I've been through a, a few of these, built some great technology myself. You're so wrapped up in it, you don't see what it can do. Yeah. And not only that, you can't see what it can do. Right. Every time that technology gets in the hands of a new human, you're like, Holy moly, I didn't know you could do that with a hammer. <laughs> yes, right. So, and, and I think part of the blindness, and we'll get to the Reddit thing, I think part of the, the blindness and the recklessness, you know, you bring up the metaphor of a hammer, they were so drinking their own Kool-Aid that they didn't acknowledge that hammers can be used 
to hit people. They only thought hammers can be used to hit nails. And if you ask them, well, what about if someone hauls off and swings a hammer at another person? They would say, well, we don't want to think about that. We just want to think about nice things like free speech. Are so, you kidding? Who would do that? Who would ever do that? And, and on the Internet, I mean, you'll put that, but who would read it? I mean, yeah, come on. it'll get drowned in the noise. And ultimately, the arc of history will bend toward justice. The marketplace of ideas will sort things out. And they were really just hardcore free speech absolutists and techno libertarians and what I call in the book techno utopians. I mean, that, the subtitle of the book, it's antisocial online extremists, techno-utopians, and the hijacking of the American conversation. The reason I put all those three concepts in there is that it's not enough just to talk to the extremists. There have always been extremists. There have always been paranoid cranks and what Theodore Roosevelt called a lunatic fringe. What's unique is that we have these techno-utopians who assume that by giving a power to everyone, by giving a voice to everyone, by redistributing power to the people, nothing but good would come of it. And that just was never true. So the reason I embedded with Reddit specifically was that they were kind of the epitome of this. They were fully committed to this notion that anyone can put up any link. The design of the site is incredibly simple. It's, it's essentially you put in a link, people can upvote it or downvote it. And then from there, it grows into comments and threads and subreddits and individual pages. Groups of you know communities. That's where the, the fringe guy that you know keeps his head down and goes to work every day, he's a member of, of one or more of these subgroups mm -hmm. that speak to his fringe ideas. Yeah. And, and so when I was, you know, I spent a lot of time at Reddit's headquarters in San Francisco. And, you know, most of the subreddits, there are more than a million subreddits now. Most of them are completely benign, just weird things that I mean, some of them are just politics or science or, you know, just big, big categories of things that people could be interested in. Others of them are gifts of cats riding skateboards or people who are really into Rick and Morty or people who are really into succession or I mean, it could it could be anything and it is anything. The problem comes when they have such a commitment to free speech absolutism that if things start to go off the rails, they sort of throw up their hands and say, nothing we can do. I, the, one of the metaphors I use in the book is to a party. If you start a party in a big warehouse and you just assume everyone's going to get along and dance and have a great time, you have to have a PA system in place and a sprinkler system in place and a guardrail system in place just in case someone comes in and starts poisoning the drinks. And bouncers. And bouncers. But they, and, and they <laughs> very much <laughs> decided not to have bouncers. They decided anyone can come in. On Reddit, you could be anonymous. You could start as many accounts as you wanted. There was no one carting people at the door in any way. So then they set up this huge warehouse party. There are millions and millions of people there. It's dark. It, no, it's dingy. No one can see what's going on. Anyone can do anything. And then they just leave. And Huffman and Ohanian go away and found other companies for 10 years. And the warehouse party gets toxic and feral and bizarre. And then, so the reason I focused again on this narrative is that they changed, right? They changed their minds. So Steve Huffman comes back as CEO in 2015 and he walks into this chaotic warehouse party and he says, all right, there's a new sheriff in town. I'm going to clean this up. You know, I, I gave birth to you guys. I can destroy you too. And he starts banning subreddits, which is something he never thought he would ever do. He, he considered himself a rebel, an anti-establishment guy. He never wanted to think of himself as the gatekeeper. But he just said, you know, it's one thing to have that abstract principle. It's another thing to sit and watch this thing happen on your on your watch, this thing that you built. So I sat with him, you know, after Charlottesville, he actually went to the University of Virginia and the Charlottesville thing with white supremacists marching through his campus really disturbed him on a personal level. 
And he was on a plane when he saw that. And he started IMing from the Wi-Fi on the plane with his team. Instant messaging. Yes. <laughs> and it was actually in Slack. But it was he was just typing to his team. If these people who organized this rally are organizing it on our platform, I want them gone. The phrase he used was nuke them. <laughs> so that is a long way to go from someone who was, I don't touch anything. I'm just laissez-faire to nuke these people because I don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. And he said to me, look, you know, someone like me in 2005 when I started this thing, I would have been very, very reticent. I would have been very skeptical of someone like me coming in and making that subjective human decision. But the fact is these decisions are messy and subjective and human. And even when they're being made by algorithms or bots, those things were built by humans too. And they have our biases built into them. So eventually what they did, and they never, no company has ever done anything like this. They let me sit in the room when they all opened their laptops. It was about 20 people, you know, wearing hoodies and eating snacks of string cheese and drinking kombucha, just, you know, people. And they all opened their laptops and they said, okay, which subreddits are we going to ban to make sure we don't have any Nazis on our platform. And they just went down a list and said, this one's full of swastikas, we're getting rid of it. This other one, it has some swastikas, but they're for historical reasons, they're newsworthy, we're gonna keep that. And they just went down the list and I watched them just nuke them again and again. And then they would say, okay, this one, we're gonna let them off with a warning. Oh, this one has a bunch of bestiality on it, but we our filters totally missed it, we're gonna get rid of that. There was one point where they said, well, we got rid of a subreddit called dog sex, but we didn't get rid of another one called sex with dogs. They're, and they're just in this room sort of joking and getting up to stretch and, you know, rubbing their eyes. And I mean, it's just a very, very human process. And in a way, it was shocking to me to see that because you sounds just... like the editorial meeting. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, we are used to that in media. We are used to in traditional media. We're used to thinking of ourselves as having curatorial responsibility. When I write a story for The New Yorker, there's lots of human decisions that go into why am I writing about this and not that? What is my approach going to be? What is my tone going to be? We take for granted that those editorial decisions are being made by humans all the time because of that old model of what's fit to print. Under this new model, it was supposed to be pure, no fingerprints, purely neutral. The machines are going to take care of it for us. And we've just learned that that's not the way it goes. And frankly, if we don't have people who are willing to step up and revise their ideology and become messy, subjective human gatekeepers, then we're in for a lot of trouble. I'd like you, if you can, give me a profile of what the ages are or the educational levels or socioeconomic profiles. I mean, is this a young person's sport? Everyone uses these platforms. The, these truly, when you look at their early, early plans for what they wanted their platforms to become, Reddit and Facebook and all the rest of them, it was almost hard to believe that they even bought the hype themselves, that this was going to revolutionize human discourse. And it's amazing the extent to which it has. I mean... You know, whenever there are these lists of what's the most influential, the one that you talked about before, and it lists USA Today or Yahoo or the New York Times or whatever, what that leaves out is that the way they become influential is through these massive distribution systems. It's not like, you know, you just drop a virus into the air and it spreads. It spreads through specific mechanisms that specific people have built. You know, it spreads because, you know, to continue with the virus metaphor, because someone gets on an airplane or someone gets on a boat or someone, you know, amplifies in some scalable way. And these platforms are the way they do it. So, yeah, everyone is on these platforms. And, you know, all ages, all ages, all, all profiles, all genders. You know, people have a very specific idea of a 14 year old boy, you know, in a basement who's like the prototypical Internet troll. And I, I met a lot of that. I, I saw a lot of that. But, 
you know, a lot of the people in my book, they're women, they're in their 40s, they're in their 50s, they're married with kids and dogs. Some of them are people of color. Some of them are Jewish. Some of them... uh, uh, It's everyone. It's everyone. And so we don't want to demonize the technology. Mm. We want to understand that, like any large community... There are going to be fringe elements, and there are fringe elements there as well. Well, there are fringe elements, but part of the problem with the way these systems are built is that they don't stay fringe. These platforms are built on emotional engagement. The way things go viral is by hitting people at their lizard brain, activating emotions. So it's one thing if you have a lunatic shouting on a park bench in a public public place. Doesn't go very far. Doesn't go very far. It's another thing if the way that that public square was designed was that every time someone shouts something more outrageous— and that fills people with more alarm and more disgust, they start getting more points in the system. And the system rewards that and creates a feedback loop to amplify that as much as possible. You know, these tech guys like to take refuge in this notion that, well, if you don't like what's on our platforms, then you just don't like human discourse and you don't like people and you don't like free speech. But it's not a flat reflection of what people are thinking in the country. It's an amplified funhouse mirror exaggeration of what people are thinking. And that's why I felt it was important to go directly to these gate crashers because they are propagandists and they know how to get their message out. They know how to hit those fear and anger and disgust emotions. Shock. Shock. <laughs> outrage. That'll, get, that'll travel much faster than a yeah. warm puppy. And they know how to do it. I mean, look, there was always, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. There were always tabloids. There was always yellow journalism. But these systems are new. It's not just putting something in front of people on a newsstand and they can pick one thing or another thing. The algorithms pick which things you see and which things you don't. And so... All these people that I spent time with, these alt-right people, these alt-light people, these misogynists, you know, some of them used to be leftists. Most of them used to be leftists. Some of them used to be libertarians. They went down this um, libertarian to alt-right pipeline, they called it. The way they do that, the way they get sucked in and radicalized is through these algorithms. Nobody was born alt-right. They got sucked in. They got converted because these algorithms warped their brains. And it can happen to anyone. It can happen to you. It can happen to your children. We all think that we're immune, but we're not immune. We can't tell the veracity, the provenance of the information coming in. We don't have the time. We don't have the tools. And if it just keeps coming in in a steady stream, we're going to believe it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have to understand who we are as humans. Especially if we think of it as just a neutral, flat reflection of, you know, this is human discourse. It's not. It's a very specifically warped vision of human discourse. You use two words I think we can explain. One is meme, which is M-E-M-E. Mm-hmm. And you talked about Internet trolls. What does each mean? What do they do? So meme is a concept that was invented by Richard Dawkins, who's an evolutionary biologist. And he wanted an analog to the term gene. So a gene is a piece of information that propagates itself through a biological organism. A meme is a piece of information that propagates itself through human culture. Whether it's a song, an idea, a fashion trend, whatever it is, it's something that is fighting for its survival, the way that genes are fighting for their survival. And the way that happens is by human transmission. So any means of human transmission, it could be mouth to mouth, it could be word of mouth, you know, in a public park, it could be, you know, again, to use these old fashioned analogies, someone standing on a soapbox, they are propagating their memes in the form of their ideas to the 10 people who are listening or the 20 people who are listening. When things are transmitted through social media in a way that every person can be a node and a transmitter, there is no more 
top-down media supremacy anymore. This is why the disruption of the media ecosystem has been so fast and so thorough. I've been speaking with Andrew Morantz, the author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. And in the second half of our show, it's biotech. And it's the trifecta of the microbiome in your gut, your gut's immune system, and your gut's nervous system. There's a lot going on down there. And Dr. Paul Peter Tack from Kintai Therapeutics joins me to explain how this may interact with the medications you take. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Andrew Morantz, the author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. When things are transmitted through social media in a way that every person can be a node and a transmitter, there is no more top-down media supremacy anymore. This is why the disruption of the media ecosystem has been so fast and so thorough. Part of it is just the business model. You know, it's harder for newspapers to get advertising revenue and, and subscription revenue. That's important. But I think as important is the system by which everything gets scrambled and chopped up into little bits and redistributed virally in a way that you don't even know where the information is coming from anymore. This was seen as liberatory and democratizing. You know, we, we used to think of it in connection with the Arab Spring and, you know, salutary, you know, nice uh, developments in human history. But over time, it really turns bad because you just, it's not sustainable for memes to, well, let me start that again. The, the reason that this stuff eventually becomes less idealistic than it seemed at first is essentially that the social web was built on this premise that whatever's popular is what's good. You, you see Mark Zuckerberg saying this again and again in interviews. I trust people. I don't trust gatekeepers. 
he's ignoring the fact that he himself is a gatekeeper because <laughs> yeah. that's very deep. <laughs> I almost in, said something yeah. there. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. they spent the first 15 years denying that they were gatekeepers, which is why I think the guys from Reddit are special because they will at least admit it. Zuckerberg still won't admit it. But um, he trusts that, or he says he does, that um, if if it's popular, it's good. Quality and quantity are just interchangeable. And that is just not how it works. It's not the case that something is true if it's popular. It's not the case that something is morally good if it's popular. That's why we need humans. And, you know, somehow it sounds fusty and old-fashioned and elitist to say people have to decide whether they want to broadcast something based on their own judgment of newsworthiness and ethics. It's an ethical decision to decide whether things deserve to be propagated or not. That is the crux of journalistic integrity. And so Facebook and all these platforms and Twitter, they are the new, they are the new sites of discourse for all information, journalistic and otherwise. But they have given up on the responsibility to curate it in any way. So of course it's going to lead to chaos. Of course it's going to lead to chaos. So one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg famously said is, um, it's all about relevance and, you know, by which he just means what what's the most engaging to you. And a squirrel dying in your front yard might be more relevant than someone dying in Africa. So that might be true and it might be a good. He said that. He said that. Yeah. And so that might be a good business model for him to, you know, feed you only what you want in the moment instead of what you might need in terms of being an informed citizen or being a good person. But it is just a terrible recipe for a, a way to build our societal discourse. And it's just not a coincidence that you see people like Donald Trump actually being able to rise to the rungs of power. You know, Donald Trump wanted to be president in 1988. He wanted to be president in 2000. He wanted to be president in 2012. Every time he was able to manipulate media in print, he could get into the New York Post, the New York Times. He could get on TV. He could do interviews with Larry King. He could be provocative. He could say, I want Oprah Winfrey to be my running mate. Or he could say, I don't think Barack Obama was born in this country. He knew how to be a troll. He knew how to be provocative. And we'll get to what trolling means. The thing he was missing was this massive worldwide informational landscape that allowed people, normal people, the silent majority who were no longer silent, to, to keep talking about him all the time, whether they loved him or they hated him or they were confused by him or they were outraged by him or they were angry about him. All of that emotion that he sparked in people when he was just doing it through top down mass media, that that energy had nowhere to go. It wasn't being picked up in 2016 for the first time. That energy could be captured by somebody tweeting. I hate this guy. I just saw him on TV saying that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. What a jerk, right? That's engagement. That's virality. That's how you keep your message being propagated. So even if all the old-fashioned gatekeepers decided to ignore him or to debunk him or to say he was lying, that wasn't enough anymore because he could get oxygen from somewhere else. Now, what's a troll? So trolling, like a lot of these terms, it's gone through a lot of iterations, right? Um, in the old days of the Internet, trolling just meant sort of pranking someone saying something, probably something you didn't believe, just to get a rise out of someone. Uh, it was kind of like a performance art or almost like a comedy thing. But like many things on the social internet, it takes on a darker hue the longer it goes on, right? So now we associate it with harassment and abuse. 
and bigotry and racism and especially misogyny. In many ways, misogyny is like the base of the pyramid of a lot of the stuff I write about. Now, there's nothing intrinsic to the old definition of trolling that means that it has to be gross and misogynist and racist. But like a lot of things on the Internet, it's just kind of curdled over time and became associated with that. Now, when I was hanging out with the with the uh, people who founded Reddit, especially Steve Huffman, he would say to me, you know, in the old days, I used to consider myself a troll because I liked pricking people and getting a rise out of them and messing with them. That was kind of the, the, the ethos of the early Internet. But now he kind of says, well, I don't want to be called a troll now because it's it has this darker connotation. He did actually once um, make a, a, a very big mistake where he thought he was just trolling and he actually ended up messing up uh, his company in a big way. He one of the subreddits that gained a lot of traction around the time of the 2016 election and immediately after the election was a subreddit called r slash Pizzagate. And this is where people went to share information about the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which stated falsely, without any real evidence, that Hillary Clinton and her campaign manager were child traffickers, essentially, and that they had children that they were keeping in dungeons in the bottom of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Now, if that sounds ridiculous, it's because it is ridiculous. But the Internet and especially these subreddits where people can tunnel into these very deep, dark rabbit holes, uh, places like 4chan, places like 8chan, even even corners of Twitter and Facebook and Reddit. These are places where people can get trapped in some very weird echo chambers. I keep getting all the information back to them again and again and again. Yes. And, it, and like whispers, it keeps changing a bit and enhancing in a in a not so good direction. Yes. It, yes. It's not like, oh, let's make it happy. No, let's make it darker. Yes. Well, that's how these systems are designed. Again, I mean, the, these are the emotions that these systems are designed to elicit, whether the people building them knew it or not. So and what happened? So the Pizzagate thing. So they keep the more that facts get in their way, the more they shout about it more loudly and proselytize more aggressively. This is how cognitive dissonance works. If you present to them a piece of evidence that their theory is flawed, well, you're in on the conspiracy and we, we, we're going to yell at you more and dox you. Doxing is a term for releasing people's private information publicly as a form of punishment. So if, if someone were to step in and say, you guys, your theory is way off because there isn't even a basement in this pizza parlor at all much less one that has... Because they had actually named a parlor yes. and, with an address, a real one, in Washington, D.C. Yes, and they had this whole set of theories about what was happening in the basement of this pizza parlor, and people kept pointing out, that place doesn't even have a basement. And if you were one of the people pointing that out, that would make them angry, and so they would try to punish you, you know, by releasing your home address and sending people after you. I mean, it gets really, really scary. Now, eventually what Reddit did was ban this subreddit because they kept doxing people. Doxing is against the rules of Reddit. You're not allowed to release people's private information as a form of retribution. So because of that, they said, look, we like free speech. We like political discourse, but this is over the line. You're banned. They delete this huge informational hive. It's like, it's like taking a hornet's nest and just, you know, Dumping it in a river. All the so hornets. So they have to became go part of the conspiracy. Exactly. So Steve Huffman was then part of the conspiracy, and all these hornets start flying into other parts of Reddit and trying to sting the boss. Right. Let's not forget the man who took action on that pizza parlor. Yeah. No, there was a there was a guy from North Carolina who decided that he was hearing so much and learning so much that he wanted to quote self investigate. That was his term. 
So he drove to that pizza parlor in D.C. and walked in with a bunch of guns and fired shots or, or fired a shot to try to get them to admit that they were doing all these nefarious things. So it, this notion that fake news doesn't affect people's lives and it doesn't have any real world consequences, it's just nonsense. Now you have a master's in journalism. You're a real journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I have no degree in journalism. I, I do not think degrees, a master's makes you a real journalist. I'm but. very, <laughs> I'm very impressed. But your bachelor's degree is in religious studies. What perspective does your degree in religious studies give you on what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, when I studied philosophy of religion, it was all about belief. How do we form belief and how can beliefs be changed? And the Internet is a massive tool for inculcating belief and changing belief. And so conversion and picking up new beliefs and how those beliefs can morph and change and how they can be transmitted to other people. That's kind of the essence of anthropology of religion and philosophy of religion. And I think my training in religious studies helped me to see that people can be converted to things and they can also be deconverted. Andrew, there's so much in this book, lots more to talk about. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Absolutely. Thanks so much. My guest today is Andrew Morantz. His book is Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. One part of our bodies has really gotten a lot of attention in recent years, whether from the media or all over the Internet. It's our guts. And it's not just about keeping us healthy. It's also its role in ensuring our medications work the way we expect them to. Dr. Paul Peter Tack is the CEO of Kintai Therapeutics. Paul Peter, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Now, we're going to talk about the interconnected biology of three different systems, some of which I think I know and one of which I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I know you're going to lead us through it. It's the interconnected biology of the microbiome, the gut immune system, and the enteric nervous system. Apparently very important together, and we'll know that by the end of this interview. Um, remind us again, what's the microbiome? Uh, so the microbiome is basically the collection of microorganisms in your body. And it's important to realize that 95% of the microbiome resides in the gut. That's where you are exposed to the external environment, even more than in your skin, because the surface is so large. And so those are all those microbiomes, primarily in the gut. That's what we're referring to. Correct. Now, what is the gut immune system? Yeah. Well, th there's an immune system in your body that will protect you against uh, the external environment, like microorganisms. And it's very important to realize that 70 to 80% of the immune cells in the body at any time point are found in the gut, where they try to protect you against all the uh, microorganisms that are there. And of our own immune system. Our own immune cells defend us against the external environment, like viruses, bacteria. And they're operating yeah. in the gut. They're operating everywhere, but also in the gut. And most of your immune cells at any time point are found in the gut, but they circulate. So they don't stay in the gut. They go from the gut to distant sites, uh, distant uh, tissues. So all these cells migrate all the time. When you look under the microscope, it's like a picture. But real life is like a movie. Right? It's lively and everything moves all the time. Now we get to the third one, 
the enteric nervous system. And enteric is spelled E-N-T-I-R-I-C, enteric nervous system. What's that? Yeah, enteric means the gut, basically, right? And the nervous system. The, whole, the nervous system of the gut. Exactly. And it's very interesting that in the gut, you can find hundreds of millions of neurons. So neurological cells, right? The cells of the neurological system. Do we have neurons system. in the brain? We also have many of them in the brain, fortunately. Uh, but there are actually hundreds of millions of neurons in the gut, in total about 500 million. And when you look at the small intestine only, you will find about 100 million neurons, which is as many as you can find in the spinal cord, which is a key component of the central nervous system. So we sometimes call it the secondary brain in the gut. Okay, so that if we just look sort of in the gut area, we have the microbiome, all those organi microorganisms down there, the uh, gut immune system, that part of our immune system, uh, which the immune cells that are protecting us from those microorganisms in the gut. And then we have neurons in the gut. We have a nervous system in that gut area. What does it do? It signals to the brain. And there's very exciting new research showing that in diseases like Parkinson's disease, which is a very significant problem for many patients, that actually the changes in the gut precede the changes in the brain by many years. And it has become clear that this is related to the interaction between the gut immune system, the enteric nervous system, and the microbiome. And in fact, there were recent data showing that if patients have undergone, uh, or people have undergone appendectomy, so the appendix was removed, that they are protected to a certain extent against the development of Parkinson's disease. In particular, if you live in rural areas where the microbiome has a different composition than in urban areas. So it all points to a very strong interconnectivity of the gut biology and a very strong link between the nervous system in the gut and the brain. Now, we were always told the appendix did nothing. Don't worry, you can take it out. Turns out it was doing something or doing something bad? <laughs> well, it's a what very do you good, say? It's a very what does good it do? Question. Yeah, well, of course, the appendix is there for a reason. Uh, it actually contains many immune cells, so there are many beneficial effects. But in the case of Parkinson's disease, in some patients, it may actually contribute to the development of the disease dependent on the composition of the microbiome, so the microorganisms in the gut. This is certainly... Uh a new insight into how to think about our bodies. Now, now tell me, what has Kintai done? Yeah, Kintai is looking at the biology of the gut in an integrated way. So we don't look at one system in isolation. We take all these different systems into account because they talk to each other. The nervous system in the gut, the immune cells in the gut, and the microbiome, they all talk to each other. And in fact, the microbiome can be seen like an organ we have about one and a half kilogram of bacteria in our gut. It's like an organ, right? Sometimes we call it the forgotten organ. And these are not just innocent bystanders. Of course, Wait a minute. Yeah. We have three pounds of, of, of microbes in our gut? That is absolutely right, yeah. Okay, go on. So that's why we call it almost <laughs> a forgotten organ. Uh, and I these, might have uh, forget I had three pounds of microbes in my gut, but yeah, go on. Okay, so... It's actually good that we have these microorganisms. Okay. But without it, life would probably not be possible. So it's very interesting. We have trillions of microorganisms in our, in our gut, actually more cells from bacterial or microorganism background than mammalian cells. And together, 
that makes the human body, which can be seen as a super organism, right? We work together, the mammalian cells and the microorganisms, and that makes up you actually as a human being. And some bacteria are bad guys. They are eliminated by the immune uh, uh, system. But most of these bacteria in the gut are the good guys. And they produce all kinds of mediators. They make compounds like what we call metabolites that have an effect on human biology and that are critical to stay healthy. So what is Kintai doing? We look at the interconnected biology, so these systems that talk to each other, in different parts of the gut, try to understand how that is dysregulated in disease compared to healthy people. And then we try to modulate this, what we call enteric signaling network, the signaling network in the gut, and translate it into chemistry. In other words, we develop tablets or pills, so small molecules that you can take orally to cor correct, for example, uh, for a deficiency where you have low levels of metabolites that are uh, critical to maintain healthy, to maintain health. Well, th that's, that's very comprehensible. I mean, first of all, the fact that you have three pounds of anything that's alive and moving and has a function, you have to pay attention to it. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. and it's in this environment. And when it's all working well, it's doing something very critical. And in so many times, whether we were taking antibiotics, whether we had a uh, we had bad food, uh, whether we were on particular medications for uh, a condition that we had, we all know that we we can sense just from our own experience that it affects the gut. Yeah. And when you think about it that way, every one of those is an insult to the gut, and that system can get out of whack, if yeah. you will. Well, absolutely. I think you give great examples because if you need antibiotics, you will need to take antibiotics for an infection. But of course, it may have profound effects on the gut microbiome. And therefore, there's a risk, right, that you will make it dysfunctional. Uh, food, you mentioned food. It's very important to think about food that you do not only feed the mammalian cells, but also the microorganisms that you need to stay healthy. So I tell my children when they eat that they need to feed their gut microbiome. Right by eating vegetables and fiber and and um, uh, yeah, what do and the, fruit. What uh, is that three pounds of microorganisms looking for for me to feed? Fiber. They like fiber. Yeah, yeah. So all these yeah. ultra processed foods, not happy. Exactly. Not good yeah, things. Yeah, and it has an effect on the diversity of the microbiome. You need a diverse microbiome with many different microorganisms that can produce metabolites compounds that you need actually to stay healthy. That the whole fit. body needs. That the whole body needs. Yeah, it's not only about the gut, right? It goes everywhere. The other point to mention is that if you take medicines that are approved already, right, that their function is altered by the gut microbiome. So it goes in two directions. Some medicines have a profound effect on the gut microbiome, like antibiotics, but it's also the other way around. Many medicines are changed under the influence of the gut microbiome. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And that's very interesting. It was just a paper which came out in a high-impact journal, Nature, this week, showing what the big effect is on approved medicines and how it actually changes the efficacy or effectiveness and also how it may lead to increased toxicity. So, we so need wait to a minute, let me just get yeah. this straight. Yeah. You're taking a medication, and because of what you eat, you can actually change how toxic it is to you or other ways it could affect you? Well, the food is one factor that determines your gut microbiome. And what has been shown in the study in nature is that the gut microbiome may change the properties 
of medicines that you take and make them less effective or more toxic. So if you also took an antibiotic on top of what you were doing. Exactly, yeah. It would affect the other yeah. medications. Yeah. It does, yeah. So now we have new science and very good science that says these things have to all be watched together. That's exactly right. And I think in the fact in the past the fact that the gut microbiome changes the properties of molecules like medicines was ignored. At Kinta Therapeutics we turned this around. We, we turned this into an opportunity. So we used the gut microbiome and our unprecedented understanding of what ha what's happening in different parts of the gut to basically create medicines that we call precision enteric medicines to activate specific biological pathways exactly where we want them to be activated under the influence of the gut microbiome. So we have turned this into an opportunity to be more precise in how we deliver therapeutics to patients. Now, I understand that you have uh, decoded or found or addressed 44,000 new genes in the gut. This would be in the microorganisms in the gut. And that you've also uh, determined 400 new metabolites. Yeah. That's, the, that's what they create altogether. What do you do with that? I think this is a clear illustration that we have created unprecedented insight into the interconnected biology of the gut in specific parts of the gut. And indeed, we identified 44,000 genes that were not known before to be expressed in the gut. We found uh, close to 20,000 new biochemical reactions in the gut. And we found 422 new metabolites that were previously not characterized. And together, you could imagine that that inspires the development of new medicines. So we translate that into chemistry and into tablets that can be taken for patients with a disease who need better treatments. Do these need FDA approval in the same way that drugs that we take and, and enter our system need? Uh, that's a good question. For, um, for most of these uh, medicines, we believe it will need FDA approval because we will create what, what's called new chemical entities. For some of them, which are really completely inspired by natural metabolites, um, it is possible that to develop them according to the so-called grass route, which means generally regarded as safe. Okay, so what are your first candidates? Yeah, the first medicines that go into the clinic uh, are already next year, so we are very excited to address very significant unmet needs for patients uh, on the short term already. So the first program is focused on the chronic inflammatory bowel disease called ulcerative colitis. And there's still a big unmet need because many patients are treated nowadays with a medicine called 5-ASA, 5-aminosalicylates. And it's important to realize that that leaves 80% of the patients with persistent disease activity. So what does that mean? They have abdominal pain, they complain of fatigue, it has a big impact on quality of life. So that has a huge impact on the, on the patient's lives. Many of them with, uh, are young. And we have developed a medicine that we believe will work in many patients who have filled these five ASA compounds. So that's the first molecule that will go into the clinic already next year. The second is in metabolic syndrome. Uh, we expect to be in the clinic uh, last part of next year. And metabolic syndrome is? A metabolic syndrome consists of obesity, um, lipid abnormalities, and impaired glucose tolerance. So it could be diabetes or pre-diabetes. And as you know, 
one third of the world population is overweight or obese, not only in the so-called developed world. It's a worldwide big problem. And there are currently no treatments that are approved and safe that lead to sustainable, uh, sustained weight loss in patients. So that's where we have uh, identified a new pathway uh, and developed new medicine that we, will be, that we believe will be safe, at least that is suggested by the preclinical models in a very consistent way. And we'll test that in humans next year. I'm inspired by the, the picture you've drawn for us, the dynamic of the human body. And it's, it is comprehensible. Uh, sometimes in science we have things that are, boy, there's no intuitive feel to what you just, you're, this discovery you're telling me. There's a real intuitive feel. We know this at some level. I could see where whenever we develop a treatment that we would say, How, what does this have to do with the total system in our gut? I think you're right, and uh, I'm reflecting on how you started because it really resonates with me. I'm a physician, I'm an internist and a rheumatologist. I've treated patients for decades. And it's very interesting. I think somewhere in science and somewhere in medicine, we've lost the holistic view on health. What I heard from my patients many times is what I just heard from you. Like, uh, I just got the diagnosis rheumatoid arthritis, which is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the joints with a big impact on life. What was the effect of the food, of the diet that I used in the past? What could have been the effect of stress levels, right? Thinking about the neurological system. So patients in an intuitive way, I think, know that it's about an integrated biology approach, right? All these systems talk to each other. We are one human body. And that we need to look at this in a much more holistic way. Therefore, it's very important to bring in the patient perspective in everything we do, in discovery and in development. Well, Paul Peter, we have much to talk about. I hope you will come back and visit us again and keep us updated. I will. Thank you very much. Dr. Paul Peter Tack is the CEO of Kintai Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at kintaitx.com. That's Kintai, K-I-N-T-A-I, kintaitx.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.